Hi again, everyone. I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gaston. And you're listening to Catch Me Up to Speed, the podcast by two reporters turned Hawaiian coffee farmers. Now that we're no longer in the newsroom, we help you deconstruct the news like a journalist and give you the historical context that's missing from the daily grind. And you guys, we've missed you. <laughs> you know, harvest season is upon us, so we've been really busy on our coffee farm, but we're very happy to be back here with you all. Today's show picks up where we left off at episode 12. Do you remember what we told you at the end of that episode? That we were going to explore foreign policy under JFK and FDR? Well, we want to start with a quote from Kennedy's peace speech in June of 1963. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. So here's a question for you guys. Do you recall ever hearing a president speak like this after JFK? Because Ralph and I, we're in our mid to late 40s, and we can't remember presidents talking like this in our lifetime. No, no, I I certainly can't. And JFK was known to speak often of peace and cooperation. And we recommend that you see this for yourself in JFK Revisited, which is Oliver Stone's new two-hour documentary. It was released last month in the United States. It's on Showtime. It includes more than 20 minutes of evidence and discussion about JFK's foreign policy outlook and goals. And it's such a contrast to what's happened since JFK's assassination. Particularly in the last 20 years, we've had sanctions, invasions, George W. Bush's axis of evil, and the war on terror, which of course followed up on the war on drugs and the destruction that that brought to parts of this country. You know, That JFK documentary really got us thinking about something that, you know, you, Ralph, have mentioned in passing for Mm. several years. Why is our foreign policy so rigid? It's dominated by neoconservatives, war hawks, and those who favor economic interventions in other countries. There's no place and no discussion about another way forward. So to find out why this is, we took our own advice. You guys remember when we gave you tips for understanding the news back in episode one? So our tip number three was follow the money. And what we found, guys, is big money pouring Mm -hmm. into think tanks. And these think tanks have the goal of driving foreign policy agendas on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, yeah, that's completely right. We took a look at the University of Pennsylvania's Global Go-To Think Tank Index Report, which they release every year. And I pulled a few facts out from the data that really paint this picture. First of all, this country has a lot of think tanks, over 2,200. The only other country with more than 1,000 think tanks is China, which has just over 1,400. A lot of our think tanks are based in, well, you guessed it, Washington, D.C. It's the seat of federal political power, so this makes sense. There are 148 think tanks in our capital city alone, and the surrounding states have plenty of them as well. Virginia has 97, Maryland has 47. Here's another piece of data that I pulled out of it. 
12 of the top 30 foreign policy or international relations think tanks worldwide. This is the top 30 anywhere in the world. 12 of that top 30 are from the United States. And of that 12, only two, the Brookings Institute or the Center for American Progress, are considered either liberal or progressive. I would say moderate to liberal myself. The rest of that list of 12 includes groups that are often cited or featured with direct representation in national media. We're talking about groups like the Rand Corporation, the Atlantic Council, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Heritage Foundation, just to name a few. And U.S. presidents and their administrations pull staff from these think tanks, from cabinet secretaries right down to State Department staff. And when the party is not in office, these staffers go right back to the think tanks, waiting until their side of the aisle is in power again. And both Democrats and Republicans use this revolving door. As an example, you've got members of Biden's foreign policy team, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, and Victoria Nuland. All of these folks worked in think tanks and were part of the Obama administration. And on the GOP side, John Kelly and John Bolton, they both worked in think tanks before joining the Trump cabinet. And now that Trump is no longer in office, Mike Pompeo, his secretary of state, is working for a think tank. Of course. And the influence of these think tanks are all over the media we consume as well. And we mentioned that at the start of this podcast. Think about this when you watch a newscast or a foreign policy forum or you read an op-ed in your paper. Heritage Foundation, American Enterprise Institute, Cato Institute, Atlantic Council, Hoover Institute, these are all more hawkish foreign policy outlets and they get a lot of airtime as well as room in major papers and news publications. So look for that in the byline of the person who's writing an op-ed or is giving their opinion on cable news. The think tanks tell a 20th century story. Namely, the rise of the United States as a hegemony, the world's dominant military and economic superpower. But now that we're in the 21st century, other powers are rising. China, India, and Vietnam, just to name a few. This is a world that increasingly calls for more cooperation amongst countries. So it's time for us to revisit two foreign policy initiatives that were popular, both in this country and abroad. FDR's good neighbor policy and JFK's Alliance for Progress. So you guys remember in episodes 11 and 12 when we introduced the concept of the news they don't tell you? Given the strength of today's think tanks, both the good neighbor policy and the Alliance for Progress have been sidelined and largely forgotten since the 1960s. So we're going to do a deep historical dive into these two policies and the philosophies behind them. As we think you'll see, the Good Neighbor Policy and the Alliance for Progress focused on mutual cooperation with other nations. They were against the colonialism of the early 20th century, and they stand in contrast to the neocolonialism that developed after World War II. Let's start by setting the stage for FDR's Good Neighbor Policy, and here's some brief historical background. After the U.S. had completed their expansion to the Pacific Ocean, they began to fully compete with other European countries in the late 1800s and the start of the 20th century. This was the era that Teddy Roosevelt made famous for his gunboat diplomacy, using either the threat of force or outright military action to advance American interests. This is the speak softly and carry a big stick era, and the military was the big stick. From Puerto Rico, Haiti, and Cuba in the Caribbean, to Hawaii, Guam, and the Philippines in the Pacific, U.S. naval power and military force were used to advance colonial business interests. 
But things began to change under Herbert Hoover, who started reaching out to Latin American nations in the wake of the Great Depression, looking to build more friendly ties. And in 1933, when FDR took office, he formulated the Good Neighbor Policy, which was a firm break from the previous orthodoxy. Here's a clip of FDR speaking about his Good Neighbor Policy in a speech he made in New York back in 1936. In the field of world policy, I would dedicate this nation to the policy of the good neighbor, the neighbor who resolutely respects himself and because he does so, respects the rights of others, the neighbor who respects his obligations and respects the sanctity of agreements in and with a world of neighbors. That declaration represented my purpose then it represents my purpose now, but it represents more than a purpose now, for it stands for a practice. To a measurable degree, the practice has succeeded. And the whole world now knows that the United States cherishes no predatory ambitions. Now Roosevelt's goal was to use cooperation, non-intervention, and trade to establish peace and economic ties through trust and diplomacy in Latin America. As you might imagine, this was seen skeptically by Central and South American countries. There wasn't a lot of trust built up then. But from his inauguration in 1933 onward, FDR's administration publicly backed this non-interventionist stance. Now check out this quote that I found from Secretary of State Cordell Hull, which he gave at a Conference of American States in Uruguay back in December of 1933. Here's what he said. No country has the right to intervene in the internal or external affairs of another. The definite policy of the United States from now on is one opposed to armed intervention. And they largely followed through on that. U.S. troops were removed from Haiti and Nicaragua in 1934. They signed the Platt Amendment to remove troops from Cuba for the first time since the end of the Spanish-American War, and they increased trade with Mexico, particularly backing the nationalization of the Mexican oil industry under the company known as Pemex. And this was important because U.S. and Mexican relations in those days was much more adversarial than what we see now. Now, let's be clear, you know, FDR's non-interventionist policies only went so far, right, yes, Ralph? True. I mean, look, as we talked about in a previous episode, Haiti still was financially controlled by Wall Street banks. And Cuban dictator Fulgencio Batista was very friendly with U.S.-aligned corporate interests. Yeah, this, this is true. And it is a good thing to point out as we're discussing these policy frameworks going forward. It's still policy crafted to maintain and grow power and influence for the United States. So continuing with the good neighbor policy, it started to show progress by the early 1940s, with World War II breaking out in Europe and soon to bring the United States in as well, FDR went looking for help and he found that these Latin American countries had changed their tune with the U.S. Vice President Henry Wallace was greeted by large crowds while rallying for support. Chile, for example, had about 100,000 citizens lining his motorcade route. FDR and Henry Wallace were, at this point, full advocates for the liberation of countries that had been under colonial rule. This was actually a sticking point in his negotiations around the Atlantic Charter with Britain's Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. 
The FDR did not want to see formerly colonized countries in Southeast Asia and Africa return to colonialism after the war was over. He actually openly expressed this up to his death in 1945, explicitly stating that he did not want the territory known at that time as French Indochina to return to French colonial rule. But we all know what happened, right? right? I mean... FDR died in April of 1945, and that idea was scrapped, right? Yeah, the short answer to that is yes. When Harry Truman took over the presidency, some of the business interests that had been sidelined under FDR started gaining more influence in his cabinet. And people like Wallace and Cordell Hull had less power. So you saw the U.S. backing France and Britain's attempts to regain control over their former colonies in Africa and Southeast Asia, just what FDR did not want. And when Eisenhower's presidency began in 1953, the actions became even more direct. This is the era of U.S.-backed coup d'etats worldwide. Iran in 1953, Guatemala in 1954, and a failed attempt in Indonesia in 1958. Yeah, I mean, this is an era that, Ralph, you and I talk about a lot, actually, here at home. We do. (laughs) Right? This is when Eisenhower's Secretary of State was John Foster Dulles, and the CIA was run by his brother, Alan Dulles. And together, you guys, they had firm control over foreign policy. Yeah, not only that, this is also the time when the political climate here in the U.S. was fully impacted by what was known as the Red Scare era. Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy was stoking fear of communists throughout the federal government and in Hollywood and all over the country, really. So both parties were very much following a very aggressive tone toward communism here at home as well as abroad. And I I can't also forget this period included the Korean War, which was a very major event at this time. It was part of what was talked about in those circles as the domino theory, which was very popular then. The domino theory worked something like this, that these countries would fall to communism like dominoes stacked one behind the other if it was left unchecked. So if Vietnam went to communism, then Laos and Cambodia would fall next, then Thailand and maybe India and Pakistan and Iran and on and on until the dominoes fall all the way into Western Europe. You get the idea. This was a very prevalent theory, but that hawkish tone had not yet fully taken hold. There were still alternative voices. So this is where the Kennedy administration comes in, right, Ralph? Yeah. And this has been an area where I've learned a lot (laughs) the past few years. Um, You know, going back to when I was in history class in high school, JFK's foreign policy was always centered around the Bay of Pigs invasion, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the buildup leading into the Vietnam War. But one of the things I've learned from Mm -hmm. all sorts of conversations with Ralph, and I think you guys can tell that (laughs) he goes deep into foreign policy in this household, right? So one of the things that I've learned from Ralph is that there's so much more that JFK's administration was working on. And especially when you consider that documentary that we talked about earlier. JFK Revisited. Yeah, it really paints his policy vision in a totally different light. Yeah, I agree. And I think what you're saying here is so important. You know, JFK's Alliance for Progress had some important similarities to FDR's good neighbor style foreign policy. Going back to his days in the Senate, John Kennedy, JFK, was known to favor decolonization. He had speeches on the Senate floor about this, his most famous one coming in 1957. After taking the office of the presidency, JFK toured Central and South America to talk about his goals for the Alliance for Progress program. 
Here's part of his 1961 speech in Venezuela, where he was celebrating a program that distributed land to rural families. This is your program, the program of your progressive, far-seeing government. And the people of my country will share in this program by making available more loans to build rural homes and more credits to finance your crops. This program is at the heart of the Alianza Paral Progreso. For no real progress is possible unless the benefits of increased prosperity are shared by the people themselves. See, Kennedy was looking to work directly with leaders of nations that had recently been liberated from colonial rule, like Ahmed Sukarno of Indonesia and Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana. He'd also reached out to leaders like Gama Abdel Nasser of Egypt and Juan Bosch in the Dominican Republic. Under the foreign policy outlook of Eisenhower and the Dulles brothers back in the 50s, leaders like Nkrumah were being pushed to make a choice. You either favor the U.S. and Western European powers, or you favor the Soviet Union. You're either with us or against us. And most of these nations wanted a non-aligned approach. They would work with both or either, depending on what was best for them but they didn't want to have to choose a side. And Kennedy was more in favor of a neutralist approach. He believed he could win the support of these nations by lending a hand in their economic development. Let me think about it, you guys. This is so different from the foreign policy that, you know, as I'd said earlier, Ralph right. and I grew up with our entire lives, yeah. right? This wasn't happening at all. Kennedy wanted to pull back on the interventionism that had become normalized as part of the Cold War and return to a program of financial incentives that was meant to build up these countries economically, agriculturally, and industrially, not just militarily. JFK was pushing for longer-term, low-interest loans for developing countries from the U.S. government. He was actually criticizing the loans that had come from the World Bank, saying that they were inflexible and they would end up retarding economic development instead of stimulating it. But that's not all. JFK opposed the return of the Dutch to the East Indies, and he was working to resolve conflicts between Indonesia and Malaysia. He even planned a presidential visit to Jakarta in 1964. Kennedy resisted pressure to commit combat troops to Laos in 1961, and he was working to withdraw the 15,000 military advisors from Vietnam starting in December of 1963, the beginnings of his plan to remove all U.S. military presence from Vietnam in 1965. And finally, Kennedy had opened lines of communication with Fidel Castro by the fall of 63, seeking to ease the tensions between the U.S. and Cuba that had built up over the previous three years. Now, you guys, that's quite a list, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But even at that time, many of these things weren't successful. So tell us, Ralph, was it because of his opposition? Well, yeah, that certainly was a part. And that opposition came from several directions. JFK's era featured different political headwinds than those under FDR's presidency. I mean, let's think about the early 60s here. The Cold War was at its height. International tensions were sky high. The connections between Wall Street and government, which includes intelligence services, was itself a growing power center. Remember that President Eisenhower warned about this new military-industrial complex growing in influence during his farewell address to the nation in 1961. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists 
and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. So those are Eisenhower's words when JFK came into office. And I told you a bit about the political situation. But JFK also did not have a supermajority in Congress to work with like FDR did. And he was dealing with opposition within his own party. You have foreign policy hawks in the Democratic Senate like Thomas Dodd and Scoop Jackson. And then you had the Southern segregationists in the Senate like Richard Russell, Strom Thurmond, James Eastland. I mean, this isn't a caucus full of compliant New Dealers we're talking about. You know, it's really interesting to hear more about how JFK had this vision far beyond just Vietnam and Cuba. You know, I'd never known how important Indonesia was to him, yeah. for example, and his support of African nations just emerging from British and French colonialism. I mean, places like Ghana and Algeria, uh, and also including his support of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. Definitely which of course was cut short by Lumumba's assassination just before JFK took office in 1961. Yeah, and you know, JFK's style of foreign policy, it came to an end when he was assassinated in November 22nd of 1963 and Lyndon Johnson assumed the presidency. LBJ sent troops into the Dominican Republic. He backed coups in Brazil and Indonesia, and he committed to combat troops in Vietnam. As we well know now, over 500,000 troops in Vietnam by the end of his term in January of 1969. LBJ was followed by Richard Nixon, who brought with him Henry Kissinger as Secretary of State. Now, both Nixon and Kissinger supported the illegal expansion of the Vietnam War into Laos and Cambodia by secretly bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The bombings in Cambodia completely destabilized that country and led to the rise of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. Laos was similarly destabilized, and that ended a political neutrality that had been negotiated almost a decade before, early in JFK's administration. Nixon and Kissinger also openly pushed for CIA intervention into Chile. They backed the overthrow of Salvador Allende and allowed Augusto Pinochet to assume military control of that country in 1973. So this is a total turnaround from FDR's good neighbor policy. You guys remember, just a few decades earlier, Chile had welcomed his VP, Henry Wallace, with 100,000 cheering citizens, right? And now, instead of having the freedom to govern without U.S. intervention, Chile found itself with a dictator enabled by the United States. Yeah, that's right. Kissinger and Nixon also turned a blind eye to Pakistan's genocidal outburst in Bangladesh in 1971. And once out of office, both of them retained connections in foreign policy for the remainder of their lives. Nixon died in 1994, but at 98 years old, Kissinger still retains strong influence in political circles. And the U.S. turned even more interventionist after Nixon resigned the presidency in 1974 due to the Watergate investigation. His successor, Gerald Ford, named Donald Rumsfeld as Secretary of Defense and Dick Cheney as his chief of staff. Both at that time were very young and very much hawks in their foreign policy outlook. They actually believed that Kissinger and Nixon had been too conciliatory to the Soviet Union and opposed their formal recognition of China. This is the beginnings of the neoconservative movement, and both Rumsfeld and Cheney saw their influence and that movement rise in the coming decades. 
Both were influential during the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. In fact, Cheney was George H.W. Bush's Secretary of Defense. And both returned to power in 2001 in the George W. Bush administration. Cheney as Vice President and Rumsfeld as Secretary of Defense. And what came next was the worst foreign policy moves of our generation, some of which we've discussed in previous podcast episodes. In the aftermath of 9-11, Rumsfeld and Cheney spearheaded the push for the Iraq War, the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, and a lot of the more recent events that lead up to our present day. It's quite a history, really, and one that is not told. We always hear about FDR in terms of the New Deal, and I mentioned how JFK's presidency is discussed in crisis points mostly, yeah. right? So it really shows how, well, this episode really shows how there is another alternative out there, but it's not one that we're going to get from just following the think tanks. Yeah, there's no think tank that's promoting this kind of foreign policy. You know, it does really make me think back to President Biden's address to the nation in August when he was talking about the decision to withdraw U.S. military forces from Afghanistan. This one-minute clip from that speech really stood out to me. Take a listen. I cannot and will not ask our troops to fight on endlessly in another country's civil war, taking casualties, suffering life-shattering injuries, leaving families broken by grief and loss. This is not in our national security interest. It is not what the American people want. It is not what our troops, who have sacrificed so much over the past two decades, deserve. I made a commitment to the American people when I ran for president that I would bring America's military involvement in Afghanistan to an end. It's been hard and messy, and yes, far from perfect. I honored that commitment. More importantly, I made a commitment to the brave men and women who serve this nation that I wasn't going to ask them to continue to risk their lives in a military action that should have ended long ago. Leaders did that in Vietnam when I got here as a young man. will not do it in Afghanistan. Now, the criticism for Biden's decision to pull out the military was constant in the media. Here's an example for you. H.R. McMaster, the former national security advisor to Trump and, by the way, current Hoover Institute fellow, so working at a think tank, he came out against Biden in print and he made the rounds on television. He appeared on the Today Show, MSNBC, NBC News, CBS This Morning and the PBS NewsHour just in August of this year. And I found that just with a quick YouTube search. You know, the other thing I was thinking about with this is that historically in that clip, Biden brought up the war of his generation, Vietnam. And the JFK Revisited documentary makes clear a point that has been fought amongst historians for decades. JFK was planning to withdraw from Vietnam in 1965. Now, certainly that didn't happen. JFK was killed. We went into Vietnam and about eight or nine years later in 1971, a future senator and Secretary of State John Kerry said the following to a congressional committee as part of a group called Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Today, to facilitate the process by which the United States washes her hands of Vietnam, someone has to give up his life so that the United States doesn't have to admit something that the entire world already knows, so that we can't say that we've made a mistake, 
Someone has to die so that President Nixon won't be, and these are his words, the first president to lose a war. And we are asking Americans to think about that. Because how do you ask a man to be the last man to die in Vietnam? How do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? Now, even with that powerful testimony and many protests going on nationwide, the Vietnam War continued until 1973. And what I found so ironic is that 40 years later, Kerry took part in continuing a similar war in Afghanistan under Obama. It's amazing how this system took a former soldier who turned into a dissenter like John Kerry, and decades later, he's the one in government helping to continue an unsuccessful and unpopular military activity. And meanwhile, the foreign policy outlines from two of the 20th century's more popular presidents, FDR and JFK, well, they just got their dust. You guys remember how we played JFK's Pax Americana clip at the beginning of the show? Well, Pax Americana is what our generation has lived with for most of our lives. And now that the world is moving towards this new multipolar era, this time calls for fresh ways of thinking about foreign policy. Yeah, not since the colonial age have we seen such influence coming from so many different areas of the globe. Not just China, but also Korea and Vietnam and East and Southeast Asia. India is going to be a major world presence for their economic power alone. The economies of East African nations like Rwanda and Kenya are growing, as is Ghana in West Africa. It's good to note that West Africa historically had major influence throughout their entire region and into Europe. It was European colonization and the theft of resources, both human from the slave trade and resources of the land during the colonial period. That's what drained the strength of West Africa, but that time is passing. Foreign policy is not just about European issues anymore. And that's why we referenced the JFK Revisited documentary earlier in this show. The writer for this documentary, Jim DiEugenio, is a historian who's done decades of work examining JFK's foreign policy. And in February, there's a four-hour version of this documentary that will be released here in the U.S. And it's going to feature not just an in-depth focus on the assassination itself, but also what JFK's foreign policy really was, how it was formed, and how it played out during his administration. And if we believe that understanding the past is as vital to our future as it seems, and we do believe this, then this examination is not only right on time, it's well overdue. And I hope this documentary will spark that kind of discussion today so that we may have a spark of new thinking about what foreign policy can be going forward. And that's our show for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a question about this episode or any of our past episodes, please let us know. Drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com and tell us something like, hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on A, B, or C? And of course, please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. We want to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram with at catchmeup number two speed. Catch me up to speed. And as always, thanks for spending time with us today. Talk to you guys again soon. 